Jesse, last week's killer set new records for laziness in body disposal department. What's the story this time around? When a love triangle goes fatally wrong, two people end up dead. And when the mysterious killer is unveiled, the consequences are tragic. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about passion, schemes, and as always, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod or on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. And if you are one of those new people, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us this week. And just a quick heads up. If you're listening to Love Murder for the first time, please know that we believe that oftentimes the only way to deal with the depths of human depravity is to laugh. So we want you to know we will never, ever diminish the victims or anything they've experienced. But if you're looking for a purely serious show, we're probably not the ones for you. There will be some jokes throughout the episode. So hopefully that's your jam and we're going to be your new favorite podcast besties. That being said, I think we should jump right into the story. Let's. It was a bitterly cold early morning in Yakima, Washington on the day after Thanksgiving, 1975. It was still pitch dark at 5 a.m. when two neighbors bumped into each other on their way to go duck hunting, a popular pastime on a day most had off. The two men, waiting separately for their rides, paced to keep warm and made small talk about the curious noises that occurred at 2 a.m. only hours before. The noises were most definitely gunshots, the two hunters acknowledged, experienced with such things. But who would be shooting off a gun in the wee hours after Thanksgiving? The men determined that though Yakima was a town, it was still small enough that someone might have gotten a little too excited for hunting season and spouted off a bit early. After all, there's always one in every crowd. Just then, they noticed a woman exiting a nearby home. It was notable because of the dark and intense cold. No one else was awake, and the neighborhood had been deadly silent. Both men later reported that they assumed the woman was picking up the morning paper, and they watched idly as the petite woman in the robe crossed the frosty porch and walked down the front steps and onto a lawn kissed with a powder-sugar dusting of snow. Suddenly, a scream shattered the still, quiet cold. Oh my God, he's dead. Oh my God. Oh my God, the woman shrieked. Both men went running towards her cries and were confronted by the sight of a large man lying on the ground with blood-red stains on his face. Later on, all of Yakima and across Washington state, people would know who this man was, who this woman was to him, and who she was to someone else. And before the new year would be rung in, another soul would be dead. This is the story of a deadly love triangle, a head-scratching whodunit, and a trial that would shatter the innocence of Yakima forever. Whoa. This one is quite the doozy. The book that I used for it was A Fever in the Heart by none other than the goddess of true crime herself, Mrs. Anne Rule. Or Ms. Anne Rule. I'm not really sure about her marital status. Let's just go with Anne Rule. <laughs> not that it matters. <laughs> but yes, this is an Anne Rule. I'm very excited to do Anne Rule. She's just... 
I mean, there's a reason why everyone thinks she's the best. Mm -hmm. She just writes very conscientiously and with a very human perspective. Let me see that cover art. It is a bullet flying through an apple. I had a feeling it was something amazing. It is. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. (laughs) A fever in the heart. All right. All right. So let's talk about some people that might eventually end up in a love triangle. (laughs) Morris Blankenbaker was born on December 16th, 1942, the only child of Ned and Olive Blankenbaker. Olive and Ned would divorce before Morris's second birthday, and he was raised largely by his mother, who was a hardworking court reporter. Ned went on to remarry and have two more sons, whom Olive very unselfishly worked hard to foster relationships with and between all of the boys. She was like, just put herself above the fact that they had been divorced and her husband had moved on because she really wanted the best for Morris. And the best thing for Morris was to have relationships with his brothers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I've always been so blown away by court. You said she's a court Court reporter. Yeah. Like stenographers. Yes. Yep. Yes. 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 That's what I figured. But then when I said it, I was like, wait, is she just a reporter? Like a journalist? But no, No, I know. No, no, no. Yeah. That's what Olive did. And she was really, really good at it. So she like oftentimes was picked by judges specifically to like cover all of their cases because she was so good at it. So Morris obviously took after his mother as far as like her unselfishness goes, because even as he grew into a handsome, athletic golden boy, he retained so much kindness and grace. Morris played baseball, he ran track, he wrestled and was the star fullback on the football team, but he also played trombone and French horn. Oh, yeah, he's very well-rounded. One of Morris's favorite coaches was a still young man named Talmadge Glynn Moore, Only nine years older than Morris, but with an already stellar record and reputation, he went by the nickname Gabby, but his athletes would call him coach for life. When Morris graduated high school in 1961, he was voted best athlete of the year, and he was awarded with a four-year full football scholarship to Washington State University. Whoa. Go Morris. During high school, Morris only had eyes for one girl, a stunningly pretty brunette named Deanne. Deanne was three years younger than Morris, a charismatic cheerleader with blue eyes and dark hair. Deanne was from an affluent family. Her dad owned a real estate company, but she had been left devastated when her parents divorced and her father remarried and began a new family. Morris could obviously relate to that, and the two got very deep and very serious almost instantly. This was went beyond just like a high school sweetheart. They were immediately extremely serious and in what seemed like a mature relationship. Okay. And what year is this-ish? 1961. Okay. Wow. It's crazy that both their parents got divorced back then. I know. In the in the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, Morris's parents were divorced in the 40s, which wow. almost never happened. Yeah. Yeah. Deanne very much substituted Morris and her desire to begin a life and a family with him for what she felt like she lost with her family, essentially. So she obviously was a teenager when her parents divorced, so it it just hit a little differently. Like, Morris didn't even really remember his parents being together. Yeah. And I think that switched her relationship to Morris being like, I feel like I've lost my nuclear family. I want to build one with you right away, you know? Deanne was the only woman Morris would ever love, and he offered her kindness, adoration, and the stability she craved. The young lovebirds wed in August of 1965, just a couple of months after Deanne had graduated high school when she was 18 years old and Morris was 21. It's definitely not how I reacted when my parents divorced when I was in my teens. (laughs) 
know how you reacted by like becoming super mom. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, I'm super mom. I'm not interested in boys. I shall never let this happen to me. (laughs) Yeah. You didn't immediately get married at 18. That wasn't in my to-do list. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they did. They were really, really young. But I do think there was like a certain level of maturity about this. And we're also talking about 1965. People were getting married this young then, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So Morris dropped out of college to join the Marine Corps Reserves and was honorably discharged after serving four years. In February of 1969, Morris and Deanne moved back to Yakima, where Deanne worked in a bank, and Morris finished his undergraduate degree at Central Washington University, located in nearby Ellensburg. The family happily expanded in May of 1969 and September of 1970 when they welcomed son Rick and little daughter Amanda. That's two kids real fast, but they were delighted. I think that's exactly what they wanted. They wanted a little boy, a little girl. They got exactly that. They were done. They were young professionals now who are accomplishing both their personal and professional dreams. And it should be said, too, that Anne Rule uses pseudonyms for most of the characters in this, except for the main players. I'll be using the pseudonyms Anne Rule chose. And I think that's always good, especially when you're dealing with children, you know? Oh, 100%. So back in Yakima, Morris reconnected with his old coach, Gabby, who became a peer and very close friend. Gabby, nearly a decade older than Morris, was a Korean War vet who taught math and driver training courses, but whose true talent lay with coaching. Gabby married a fellow phys ed teacher named Gay Myers, and they went on to have three beautiful children, two girls and a boy. Throughout the years, Gabby became a legendary coach. He was inspirational and tough and was known to be able to make champions out of only moderately talented athletes. He was like the coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights to this town. Okay. In the year that Morris and Deanne moved back to Yakima in 1969, Gabby was at the top of his game, winning the Chamber of Commerce trophy for outstanding physical education, for outstanding physical education educator. In 1972, his wrestling team won the Washington State Championship, and they even got to go to Japan to compete. So cool. So cool. Gabby was widely regarded as the best wrestling coach in all of Washington State, if not the country. Morris and Gabby both attended classes at Central Washington University, which is where they reconnected. The two men picked up a fast friendship, complementing each other well. Morris was a handsome, muscled young man who was a friend to all. And while Gabby's hair was receding and his paunch expanding as he entered his 40s, he still had this like crazy magnetism, insane charisma. And he had the admiration of an entire town because he had made their town like put on the map with their championship. Yeah, you know? yeah. Together, Morris and Gabby enjoyed doing outdoorsy athletic activities together like hunting and fishing and whitewater rafting. On one of these excursions, Gabby suffered a near-death experience. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. This sounds so stressful. While rafting on the Yakima River, something went wrong and the raft capsized. The undercurrent pulled both Morris and Gabby under the water where they had to try to make it to the surface while dodging floating debris and sunken logs. Um, no. So Morris was an extremely strong swimmer. There was even like an anecdote in the book about how he used to stress out all of his friends and his mom by like going underwater and like floating and keeping his head underwater until they thought he was drowning, but he was really just holding his breath because he was really good at it. I don't like that. 
That is not a fun game, Morris. It's not not a good look. So Morris is a really strong swimmer. I mean, he's basically Superman. He's good at all athletics. He's like the nicest guy in the world. And of course, he's a great swimmer. So he had no problem getting back to the surface. But then when he, you know, was looking for his old coach, he realizes that Gabby has still not surfaced. So he starts diving back down and trying to find him, which is really hard because they're literally in white water. So it's it, the visibility is very difficult. Yeah. And finally, he finds Gabby, whose legs had become tangled in vines and roots at the bottom of the river. Oh, my God. holding him down. So Morris keeps coming up for breath, holding his breath, and then going back down to untangle Gabby's legs. How is Gabby holding his breath that long? Gabby's, like, almost passed out at this point. Okay. Like, you know, so Morris manages to get him to shore and does, like, CPR, and Gabby just vomits up all of this river water but he's so scary so scary so scary so yeah later morris's mother olive would bitterly say to Anne rule i wish he'd never made it i wish morris had left him there in the river whoa foreshadowing i'd say so gabby did live and he and morris became closer than ever as i imagine you do when one of you saves the other person's life uh yeah For sure. Morris was delighted when Gabby asked his advice about his teams and brought him in occasionally for some assistant coaching. It was the building block to Morris's dream of becoming a head coach someday. As close as they were, though, Gabby didn't confide in Morris about the disintegration of his marriage to Gay. So it came as a shock when Gabby told him in December of 1973 that he was potentially getting a divorce. If you had asked Gabby what had happened to his marriage of almost two decades, he would tell you that Gay wanted out and he could no longer fight to keep it together. For her part, Gay felt that Gabby had become paranoid and jealous, accusing her of sneaking out to see a phantom lover every time she left the house. She was not having an affair. So very controlling. Yes, very controlling. She eventually just got to a place where she was like, we've been married for almost 20 years. We have three like teenage children. I have a full-time job. You have a full-time job. Like, I can't do this anymore. I can't, like, tell you I'm, like, not sneaking around. She's like, when would I have time to do that, you know? I feel you, sister. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's enough. You should have trust in your partner after 20 years. I mean, you should have trust in your partner after any amount of time or else it's, you know, you're not having a good relationship. Yeah. I, like, love how we always talk about, like, how do you have enough time? Like, (laughs) Yeah, how does anyone have enough time to have affairs? I I can barely like sneak in a Peloton workout over here. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, yeah, and I don't even have to look hot for that, you know? Imagine if you're having an affair, you have to like try to look hot and sneak around. No, it's it's mind-blowing. It's boggling (laughs) to me. I like, I don't understand. Yeah, so around this time is when he does confide in Morris about what's going on. Now, at this point, Gabby still wanted to try to win Gay back. So he's like, look, she wants me out of the house. I don't want to commit to like buying a house right now because I think we're going to get back together. Also, I'm really depressed about this and I want to be around people. So is it okay if I move in with you for a couple of weeks until I can like reconcile with Gay? And Morris being the saint that he is, is like, yes, well, you know, let me check with the wife. And he kind of convinced Deanne to let Gabby move in with them for a little while. And she wasn't crazy about the idea. She was like, ugh, I don't need like another guy around here. Yeah. And they have two kids. They have two really little kids at this point too, you know, they're like two kids that are under four, I think. 
it just yeah. felt like a lot. But Morris really wanted to help his old coach and friend out. So he finally convinces Deanne and Gabby moves in with them in January of 1974. But within a few weeks, it's very clear that the Moors are definitely getting a divorce. So there's not going to be a reconciliation. Okay. And by then, it was Morris, not Deanne, who was beginning to wish that Gabby hadn't come to stay. So Gabby had always been a paragon of virtue and instructed his boys to do the same. Like he was always like talking about, you know, your body is a temple. He didn't allow any drinking or drugs or, you know, anything. Even like in the off season, he was like, you can't do any of that nonsense, you know? Yeah. Also, they're in high school, so they shouldn't be. They're also in high school, so they shouldn't be. But I feel like isn't 1970s, wasn't that when the drinking age was 18? Oh, maybe. Yeah, I think at least part of the 70s, the drinking age was 18. And everyone smoked pot, huh? Yeah, all that reefer madness. <laughs> reefer. <laughs> yeah, so so basically he had kind of lived, like he walked the walk, he talked the talk. And now he's drinking like crazy. And he had begun participating in some very dangerous activities. Like he took a gun up to Gay's house while he was drunk and threatened his ex-wife. Wow. Yeah. So Morris is seeing a whole new side of Gabby that he had never seen before. And he is not liking. Yeah. You want someone who literally went to their ex's house with a gun to stay with you and your kids under four? No. And I think also it's like, don't meet your heroes type of thing because he had worshipped and adored this man, you know? Yeah. Yeah. However, Gabby must have hid this terrible behavior from Deanne or maybe Morris wasn't telling Deanne what was going on because she was having a totally opposite experience. She loved having Gabby around. She found him charming. And I guess he was super helpful around the house, which, you know, like men in the 60s and 70s weren't traditionally very helpful around the house. You say? Yeah. And Deanne would counsel Gabby through his feelings about gay. And she found that he was very vulnerable and passionate. And Deanne had been with Morris since she was like 14 years old. Yeah. So she only knew Morris as a man, basically. And he was stable and kind and stoic. And he was definitely a solid man and a dependable partner. But he was not very passionate. Okay. After eight years of marriage, Morris and Deanne had settled into a gentle rhythm, but Gabby looked at gorgeous Deanne through new hungry eyes, and Deanne began to appreciate the attention. He's got hungry eyes. <laughs> I tossed that one out for you. I'm so glad you picked it up. <laughs> so yeah, right under sweet Morris's nose, Gabby began to reel his wife in little by wow. little. Dude saves your life and then you try to steal her wife. Oh, I didn't mean that for that to rhyme, but it does. That you steal <laughs> yes. her wife? He saves your life. You steal his wife? That is just Not cool. wrong. Not cool. So wrong. Not yeah. cool. So yeah, Deanne herself would later say she didn't know exactly how or when or even why, but she fell in love with Gabby. And from the outside, it probably looked crazy. She was giving up handsome, sweet Morris for a paunchy, balding man 15 years older than herself. But Gabby was that darn charismatic. And I definitely feel like Deanne felt seen, desired, and wanted again for the first time. In a yeah, very and how time. old is she? 
she's at this point, I think like 27. Yeah. I mean, that definitely goes into like that female awakening when you want to get laid all the time too. And she's like, yeah. And I think also like her kids were at an age now where she just kind of recovered herself. She's coming out of that like infant toddler zone. Uh huh. And she probably wants to feel like a woman again, you know? Yeah. I, I do think there was something lacking. And, you know, I know some people do it. I really do. It's like I, I'm always blown away by people who are like high school sweethearts or even college sweethearts who are happily married forever. And it does exist. But I do think it's really hard when you get married to somebody who's the only person you've ever been with and you guys got together in your teens, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I think that's what is a lot going on here with Deanne. And also Gabby, for all of his faults, was apparently humongously charming, you know? I thought and you were going to so- say something else. <laughs> <laughs> humongous. I don't know. Maybe he was that too. <laughs> Anne Rule did not say. She did not give us the goods. Ugh, she didn't whip out the ruler. No, she didn't. But yeah, there was definitely something about him and and it happened fast. Less than two and a half months after Gabby moved in, Deanne broke up with Morris, told him she was getting a divorce and what? moved out into a house with Gabby. You have got to be kidding me. Holy shit. Two months. Oh my God. What did Morris do? That's insane. Uh, Morris handled it like such a champ. He was so sweet. He basically just said like, hey, I want you to be happy. I I think this is temporary. I'm going to love you forever. You're my wife. You're the mother of my children. And I believe that you're going to come back to me. And and because of that, I'm never going to burn any bridges. I'm not going to talk badly about Gabby. I'm not going to talk badly about you. Just know that my door is always open. And oh, in my heart, you're always my wife. My God. I know. He's just such a sweetheart. So yeah, Gabby immediately proposed and they started making plans. So many red flags going off. There's so many red flags going on. I mean, he just got a divorce of his wife of almost two decades. I mean, she just left her marriage. Like if you had asked her in December if her marriage was forever, she would have been like, yes. And then all of a sudden in February, she's leaving her husband, you know? Wow. Yeah. So this is too much too soon for sure. I'm sure the the kids are really confused. Like they were living in a house with daddy and mommy and then there's this other guy living with them and then daddy's out of the picture, you know? Whoa. And also it sounds like Deanne was very torn in this phase. Like she apparently left Gabby and went back to Morris like a couple times, like not for good, not for long, but like a night here, a night there. Like she seemed torturously caught between these two men. Like she had on one hand, her very handsome, loving, stable husband, father of her children. And then on the other hand, she had this really charismatic guy who was madly passionately in love with her and made her feel, sounds like, like sexual and exciting, you know? Whoa. Yeah, it's crazy. So despite the fact that she clearly still had reservations and there were still some feelings there for Morris, She did marry Gabby on September 14th, 1974, only about nine months after he had moved in with the Blake and Bakers and changed their lives forever. Oh, my God. Mm Mm-hmm. Holy shit. That is wild. Yeah, you can imagine the gossip in this town, too, because they were both coaches. You know, they were both in the same profession. Everybody knew them. They were kind of famous in this smaller town. 
I mean, Yakima's not that small. I think it was a little bit smaller in the 70s, you know. So yeah, Morris had always thought that Deanne was going to come back to him and she had a couple times. So when they got married, he was really distraught. And he actually moved briefly to Hawaii where he lived for a few months. But he eventually became homesick and he moved back to Yakima to be near his children and his mom. Upon his return, he got a job at the Wapato Intermediate School as a phys ed teacher. Meanwhile, Deanne was learning that the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the fence. Oh, honey. Her marriage to Gabby was a disaster. I mean, big old garbage fire. What happened with the kids? Was it split custody? Morris got visitation, but they stayed with Deanne. Okay. And therefore, Gabby. Yep. So Gabby's drinking was getting worse and worse. He was now finishing a fifth of whiskey nightly, if not more. Holy moly. Yeah, it was bad. I mean, he was an alcoholic. He had a a deep issue. And when he was intoxicated, he would pick fights with his teenage children or Deanne. And he even on a couple occasions locked Deanne out of the house, like kicked her out, physically removed her, and then wouldn't let her back in. Which is terrifying when you think that you have small children in the house Yep. And there's this drunk asshole who you don't know what he's going to do and you can't get inside the house with your children. Just imagine that. No, I can't. It makes me ill. Yeah. No, thank you. Well, Deanne said no thank you as well. She filed for divorce in July 1975, less than a year after she said I do to Gabby. Oh, baby girl. I know. And she had two divorce decrees within 18 months now. Wow. Yeah. But I do have to applaud her on getting out because I feel like a lot of times people would be like embarrassed about having made this decision and like double down on it or something. And obviously she's doing what's better for her family by admitting that this was a disaster. Yeah. And getting out before the children were hurt or injured, you know? For sure. And she went immediately back to Morris. Of course. She's like, yeah, she's like, I made a mistake. This was terrible. I am so dumb. Please, and he knew love too. Me forever, and he did. And that's, I mean, that's the whole reason he was like that. The whole he's like, I knew this was just a blip, and I knew we were going to get through it. And he really handled it very well. Like he was like, no resentment, no problem. We're going to move past this. And they started making plans to get remarried. Well, Gabby did not handle Deanne leaving as well as Saintly Morris had. He handled it very poorly indeed. So he started drinking even more, if you can imagine. And he started even drinking during the day, like while he's supposed to be coaching and teaching. They said that he would keep a bottle of whiskey in his car. And like during wrestling practice, he would like go out to his car and take swigs of it. And he was also obsessively calling Deanne and basically stalking her. So he would like call her all day at her job at the bank. And he would even call her at home, even when Morris was there. And Morris was just like, coach, she can't come to the phone. We're not going to do this. We're not having this conversation. And he'd like hang up, you know? So Gabby even started manipulating people around him to appeal to Deanne to come home. He had his son like go over and take her kids out for ice cream and like try to talk to her. He had his daughters like calling her being like, please come home to dad. He's a mess. Crazy. Yeah. And of course, this this did not do anything for Deanne. It just served to drive her further into Morris's arms because Morris, this whole thing looked so stable. I mean, he looked just like, 
you know, you're coming home to stability and peace and Gabby's getting more manipulative and more contentious and more aggressive and unhinged, you know? It's like not an attractive look. No, it's not good. Eventually, Gabby's drinking and erratic behavior forced the school district to tell him he would be asked to resign at the end of the school year which was a devastating blow to the legendary coach. He had been a hero in this town. And now they're like, we're going to, because of what you've done for us in the past, allow you to finish the school year and then you're going to tender your resignation. It's so embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, at this point, he's got nothing left to lose. So Gabby began getting drunk and trespassing at Morris and Deanne's house. Oh my God, so scary. Yep. During one really, really, really scary incident, Gabby even broke into their home. So Morris also had a part-time job as a bouncer at a bar, and he would do that work on the weekends. So when Morris worked those late hours, because he wouldn't get home usually until two in the morning, Deanne would always let the kids sleep in bed with her. And then she would wake up before Morris got home or when he got home, and then they would move the kids into their own beds. Okay. So there's one occasion that she was literally in bed and she has her beautiful little baby children sleeping next to her and she hears Gabby come into her house and is like coming up the stairs. Why? Because he had a key? Yelling. Well, apparently this isn't, he technically broke in because he wasn't invited, but I guess that they didn't lock their doors. It's like that type of nice community, but y'all, you should always lock your doors. Oh, my God. Always. You and I always think of when people don't lock their doors. Have you ever heard any podcasts or stories about Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento? Uh Uh-uh. He was severely unhinged. He's a serial killer. And he, like a vampire, if the door was open, he would assume he was allowed in. And that's how he would pick his victims. He would just go door to door. And if the door was locked, he would just leave. And I always think about that when I don't lock my door. I'm like, oh. (laughs) Yeah, but the vampires have to be invited in. I know. So he's not a, he's not a real vampire. So this was terrifying. This was, so she hears him and she, luckily they had a bedroom door lock. And so she locks the bedroom door and he starts. Is Morris home? Morris is not home. He's working his bouncer job at this bar called the lion's chair. Yep. And so she's alone with her babies and he is wasted and he's pounding on the door. And he's like, if you don't come out here and talk to me, Deanne, I'm going to kick this door down. So of course the kids are waking up. They're scared. Luckily she had a phone in her bedroom because this is, you know, landline era. And she calls the bar and she's just completely terrified so this is how it went down, according to Ann Rule, by a witness. So this guy, Joey Watkins, had known both Morris and Gabby for a very long time. Seven or eight years before, when he was at Davis High School, Morris was an assistant coach on the team. And of course, Gabby was the head wrestling coach. Later, Joey, 22, recalled this incident that I'm describing. Uh, and he said, well, I was sitting in the lion's chair with Morris and we were talking and like here the phone rang and a lady answers and said, it's for you, Morris. And so Morris got on the phone and it was his wife. And she said that Mr. Moore was banging around on her house and stuff. And he said he would be over and he asked me to go with him. So by the time that Morris and Joey got over to Morris's house, he was now outside banging on all the windows and screaming for Deanne. So he'd been inside the house. He told her he was going to kick the door down. Now he's going around and he's like trying to get her attention 
at the windows. Crazy. Yeah. So it was apparent that Gabby was drunk and Joey half expected Morris to start fighting with him. You know, after all, this is Morris's house. This is Morris's soon to be wife again. And she was scared half to death when she had called the bar. So Morris got out of the car and went over there. But he said to me, Joey, you know what? I would hit him in the mouth, but he was my coach too. I can't do it. So they just went over there and started talking. Mr. Moore and Morris was talking, and I guess Morris told him something, and he just left. So Joey stared at his former coach. Gabby was so intoxicated that he had been staggering as he moved from window to window, beating on the glass with his fists. Like most of the young men who had turned out for sports at Davis High, Watkins had been flabbergasted at the change in Gabby. He told Ann Rule, he was my football coach and wrestling coach ever since I was a sophomore in high school. I seen Mr. Moore the first time in a bar when I was in the lion's chair and he was wild, you know, like he had just changed from the coach that we used to see because he was strict, you know, on us. He wasn't the same person anymore. After Joey saw Gabby in the bar that first time, he had seen him often. Gabby had always been with a crowd of friends and he was drinking like there was no tomorrow. That just wasn't the coach Joey remembered. Gabby had always demanded that his athletes train hard. If you got beat, Watkins said, he knows why, because he didn't work out hard enough. Joey Watkins couldn't hear what Morris had said to Gabby, but whatever it was, was effective. He saw Gabby stagger away. Crazy. So no one in this community could really believe this was how their venerable coach was behaving. Like even Joey is looking at this and he's seeing it with his own eyes and he's like, this can't be real. Like this must just be a bad spell. You know, he's going through a bad breakup. He's going to get his shit together, right? Yeah. But he just didn't. Like this kept going on. He was wallowing. He's excessively drinking. He's very depressed. And so eventually this stress level of what's going on in his life and the excessive drinking caused a dangerous spike in Gabby's already high blood pressure. And he was forced to be hospitalized with terrible headaches and near constant nosebleeds. So he went into the hospital on November 18th, 1974, right before Thanksgiving, and he remained there for the next three days. So meanwhile, Morris and Deanne actually enjoyed a lovely Thanksgiving holiday because Gabby was in the hospital. So they like for once didn't have to be worried about him Kool-Aid manning his way into their home, you know? Oh my God. Yeah, so they actually had like a really, really nice Thanksgiving. It was just small, like with their immediate family. And it was very meaningful for them because they had been separated the last holiday season. Yeah. So it felt like now they were getting back on track and it was just like happy holidays of the past before the Gabby debacle. And then looking forward to the future and looking forward to Christmas together and a new year and really starting fresh and putting that whole episode behind them, you know? The next day, Deanne went to work in the bank while Morris stayed home with the kids. The two had a nice early dinner before Morris had to work at the Lion's Share bar at 8 p.m. The night was typical in every respect, and at 2 a.m., Deanne woke up and realized that Morris should be home at any moment. So she bundled the kids into their own beds and snuggled back into her own to wait for her once and future husband, as she and Morris, like I said, were already planning to be married in the new year. Shortly after, she heard Morris's car door shut and then a couple more car doors shut and then some murmured voices. So when Morris didn't come in immediately, she assumed that he had gone out for an after work drink with some friends from the bar. She even got up at one point to check to make sure his car was there. She was like, was I just hearing things? That was weird. 
And it was. And she couldn't see anyone in the car. So she's like, huh. I mean, maybe he dropped the car off and then he, like, somebody gave him a ride to another place, you know? Yeah. But she couldn't see very clearly because Deanne wore contact lenses. And when she went out in the middle of the night, she wasn't wearing her contact lenses. Okay. So she didn't see, like, everything. It was just, like, she, like, got close enough to, like, make sure nobody was in the car and then she went back inside. Okay. So she woke up again at 5 a.m. And when she woke up alone, she knew something was very, very wrong at that point because there was no way Morris would ever stay out all night without telling her what was going on. Okay. And it just wasn't like him at all. Like if he had like a beer after a shift, he would come home, but like he would never stay out for hours and hours, you know? So Deanne called Morris's half-brother, a guy named Mike who had been at the bar the night before, and he claimed that Morris had come straight home after the bar shut down. So now she's getting really nervous and she was like, it's so weird. I swear I heard him come home, but where would he be then? So she's like, you know, what? I'm going to go out and look at the car and look at the yard and, you know, walk around. You just stay on the phone with me. I'll be back and I'm sure everything's going to be fine. So she put on her robe and her boots and she took her dog with her. They had a, a big dog named Hike. And they went out into the freezing cold, dark morning and Hike bounded ahead of her and he began to growl and whine at a dark human figure laying in the frosted snow. Oh my God. Deanne's heart just stopped. And in her shock, it took her several seconds to process that the love of her life, the father of her children was lying face down in the snow. So scary. It's terrifying. So she is a little girl too. She's very slight. She's maybe like a hundred pounds. And she immediately like got down and using all of her might, like flipped over her husband who must've weighed like 220 pounds. And she like flipped him over and she was horrified that he had blood all over his face and she could not pick up a pulse. Like he was definitely already passed. Oh my God. I mean, so it's worst nightmare. You know, like think about it the night before they had had a beautiful Thanksgiving and now here he is. So she just started screaming and she doesn't even like later she would say, I didn't even know I was screaming. I just was screaming. No, of course not. Yeah. Yeah. So that's when the neighbors appeared from the beginning and they, they told her to call 911. They were like, she just was in such shock. She was just like, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. Oh my God. Oh my God. And, and they're like, get in the house and call 911, you know? So when the police arrive on the scene, they clock at once that Morris Blankenbaker had been shot in the face in his own yard and he was already passed away. And she didn't hear it? She didn't hear it. I think it was based on where her bedroom was versus like basically he had to park the car near where their bedroom is and then walk kind of around the block to get into the home. Okay. And the hunters lived in an apartment complex that was on the other side. So they theorized like where the shots had heard from. I mean, where the shots had come from. The people in the apartment complex had heard the shots, but the people on the other side of the street hadn't. Okay. So it wasn't obviously not a big caliber weapon that caused a huge noise, you know? So they believed based on rigor mortis that it had happened a few hours earlier, which would match up with some of the other witnesses saying that they heard a gunshot noise or something that somebody else said it sounded like firecrackers at around two in the morning. What they couldn't figure out is who would want Morris dead. Morris was the kindest, most even-tempered man and literally got along with everyone. 
Yeah. So only one person. There's only one person that could potentially. Wasn't he in jail? He was in the hospital. Hospital, that's right. Yep. So this is obviously tremendously heartbreaking for Deanne, who had finally got her life with Morris back, but also you know, extraordinarily painful for their children and Morris's mother, Olive. Morris was Olive's only child, and she had raised him as a single mother. And you know what that bond is like. I really believe that only children of single parents, especially mothers, have extraordinarily close relationships with their children. Yeah. No, that's like the most close. Absolutely. It's just it's just a bond that a lot of people can't it's totally different from having two parents around all the time. It is. It is. It's it's a very bonding experience and like you have a cozy relationship that I don't know, it's just it's just a different experience. And Morris and Olive were very much like that. They loved each other very much. They had a deep deep mutual respect for each other. And she would later say that the heartbreak of losing her only son plunged her into a grief so extreme that when she found out that he was dead, she literally thought she was going to die. She was like, the grief was so profound, she thought it was going to physically kill her. Oh, my God. So another person who felt the loss of Morris deeply was his best friend, Vern Henderson. Vern was exactly Morris's age and had been his best friend since they were 13 years old. Vern had been a bit of a fish out of water when he moved from Shreveport, Louisiana with his black family to the overwhelmingly white Yakima, Washington. And life hadn't been easy for the Hendersons. His single mother worked in a cannery her entire life, which is really hard work. And his sister died tragically when she was only 12. Oh my God. Why? How? I don't know. Anne Rule didn't get into it. I think it was an accident. Oh. So Morris and Vern had joined junior high athletics together and quickly bonded over being only sons to single mothers. Morris and another friend named Lee became like brothers to Vern, more family than friends. And you can imagine what racist bullshit was going on in predominantly white town in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And there was a very, very, very small black community, of course. So Morris was like the type of friend who definitely supported championed and defended Vern. I mean, they really were like brothers, you know? Yeah. So both Morris and Vern had high hopes for their futures. Morris wanted to be the head coach of a high school athletic team and to follow in their coach Gabby's footsteps. And for Vern, the dream was to go into law enforcement. In 1968, Vern accomplished his dream by becoming the first ever black police officer in Yakima, Washington. Wow. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He talks about, to Ann Rule, about how that was his dream, but he didn't believe that he would be able or allowed to accomplish it because of racism. And that he basically, one of his old wrestling mates was a little older and was already on the force. And he was like, Vern, you should totally come out, like take the the police officer's test or whatever. And he apparently scored higher than any other person that was in the room that day taking that test. And they were like, yeah, of course we want to hire you. And he was like, what? (laughs) And he was amazing at it. He was awesome at how he, you know, policed, I guess. And he, by the time he was 32, when Morris died, he had been promoted to detective. So is that a conflict of interest or? No, basically he's going to get in it. Okay. All of that success, all of those incredible milestones, all of those barriers broken meant nothing when Vern stood over his dead best friend's body at Morris's autopsy. 
Vern didn't trust anyone else to investigate Morris's death. He was going to do it himself. He had held Olive Blankenbaker's body while she cried, a woman who was like a second mother to him, and he had sworn to her that he would find the person responsible. I know. Isn't this like a movie? Yeah. Yeah. So, so sad. It's so sad. Vern needed answers, and the perfect place to start finding them was at the autopsy. The medical examiner found that Morris had been shot three times. He appeared to have been surprised by the first shot, which they surmised was the shot to his mouth. His right hand had dried blood on it, which indicated blowback. Morris, it seemed like, had tried to lift his hand to defend himself. Then it appeared the shot to the face had spun him around and he landed on his face on the ground. The next two shots were shot from above and into the back of his head from a very close range. What? Yeah, Morris had been killed execution style. So the ME estimated Morris's death as around two-ish in the morning, shortly after he had gotten off work at the lion's share. It seemed likely then that the killer had laid in wait for Morris to come home. Now, Vern, of course, being Morris's best friend, knew all about the love triangle drama and that Gabby had been sketchily stalking them. Okay. So he's like, yeah, number one, a suspect has to be Gabby. There's only one person who hates Morris. And it was also really sad. Vern said that like around midnight, he had driven by their home to make sure that nobody was messing with them. And he's like, I'm so sad that I drove by at midnight and not two in the morning. Because what if I could have stopped it? Uh, Yeah, but. I mean, how how would anyone predict this? Of course, he didn't know, you know? So yeah, it didn't take Vern very long to find out that Gabby had an airtight alibi. Due to his heart issues, Gabby had still been in the hospital when Morris was shot. He wasn't discharged until 9 a.m. that day. day. So he was shot at 2 a.m., Gabby was discharged at 9 a.m., nearly seven hours after they know that Morris was killed. So Vern, like, went through everything. He went to the hospital. He interviewed every nurse, every doctor, and he walked through every scenario in which Gabby could have somehow gotten out of that hospital. Yeah. But it just didn't make sense. The corridors were very well lit, and there was a prominent nurse's station between his room and the only exit. So then he even was like, maybe he jumped out of his window, you know, and nobody saw that. Okay. And that was kind of feasible. But the thing is, is that in this hospital, all of the windows automatically lock from the outside. So you can open them up from the inside, but they lock from the outside. So there was really no way he could have gotten back in through the window. He was also in a diminished physical capacity because of how sick he was too. So it just didn't seem likely that he could have done this. Hmm. So it seems like there was no way that Gabby could have been the shooter. Still, there was one person who was completely convinced to her core that even if Gabby hadn't actually pulled the trigger, he was still responsible, and that person was Deanne. Morris had only been dead for a week when Gabby started making overtures to her again and using friends and family to once again try to talk to her for him. Oh, my God. She's going through the biggest loss of her entire life and her children's father is dead and you're trying to hit on her in one week? So gross. Deanne was disgusted and she shot down any attempt at communication. Gabby told her and others that he was afraid for his life. Like he's like, Deanne, no, like 
I, first of all, didn't have anything to do with what happened to Morris. But not only that, I'm getting targeted too, and I'm terrified for my life. He claimed that he was having uh, threatening phone calls made to his house, that there were some like strange men following him, that somebody called and said, like, I got Morris and now I'm coming for you. Gabby told this also to his family. He told them to like some of his former wrestlers were hanging out with him. And he's like, I'm, I'm terrified for my life. Deanne didn't believe him for a second. She was like, I don't trust you. I think you're lying. And I can barely hold it together with what I'm going through with my kids. So leave me the F alone, you know? Yeah. Christmas Eve was a very sad affair for all. Oh, God. I mean, think about that happened the day after Thanksgiving. No. And now Deanne is never going to have a holiday with her love again. It was sad for their kids who would never receive a Christmas present from their father ever again. And, of course, for Olive, who was just thinking about every past Christmas she had had with her beloved son, like, since he was a little baby, you know? And Gabby actually wasn't having a great time either. He was faring very, very terribly this Christmas Eve. He did live with his son, so his teenage son still lived with him. They had a two-bedroom apartment. And his son, Derek, decided to go to his girlfriend's house to celebrate Christmas Eve. And Gabby's two daughters were with his ex-wife and his ex-wife's family. Okay. And his ex-wife's father was actually the doctor that treated Gabby for his blood pressure condition. Hmm. Yeah. So he is like basically drinking alone at home with a apartment that's totally not decorated. It doesn't even have like a sad Christmas tree or anything. (laughs) Sad Christmas tree. Not even a sad one. Just no. no. Like even a sad Christmas tree is better than no Christmas tree. Even a little Charlie Brown number. I agree. You know? He's having a rough Christmas Eve. And so he did call to talk to his 18-year-old daughter, Kate. And Kate reported to her mother and to her grandfather that she felt like something was very, very wrong with her dad when he called. She was like, he's very off. He seems really weird. I'm really concerned about him. And so she tried to call like back about four times, but he didn't answer right away. And around 11.30 p.m., Gabby did call her back. And he spoke to Dr. Myers, Gay's father, very briefly. And Dr. Myers could tell that he had been drinking, but he seemed normal overall to him. He's like, yeah, he seems like a little drunk, but like he's alone on Christmas and he's lost two wives, you know, like maybe he's just depressed, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And as like a young teenage girl, you like when someone's drunk, you don't really know it's, it would definitely feel off. Yes. And especially if he hid that part of himself from his children, which I think he did. So it would be very disconcerting to have your parental figure be intoxicated. Slurring and yeah. Exactly. So it was a huge shock to the entire family after having spoken to Gabby at 11.30 p.m. when Derek Moore came home with his girlfriend Janet just before 2 a.m. and found Gabby dead on the kitchen floor. What? Yep. So Derek immediately calls 911, and the first responders on the scene initially believed that he must have died from a heart attack or stroke, especially given that he had the high blood pressure issues. Yep. But when they go to put the body on the gurney, they kind of flip him over 
And all of a sudden, all of this blood starts pouring out what looks like a left shoulder wound. And they realize that Gabby, like Morris, had been shot to death. What? Yeah. So Vern and the other police are completely shook because everyone thought that Gabby killed Morris and nobody believed that somebody was gunning for Gabby as well. Like they thought he was just completely making it up, you know? Gunning for Gabby. Yeah, yeah. Poor choice of words on my part, but yeah. So the autopsy showed that a 22 caliber slug had entered Gabby's body in the left shoulder area, bounced off a rib bone, and then tore through both chest cavities and heart. What? Yeah, it had like ricocheted? Basically ricocheted and then ripped up everything essential that you need for living in your chest. And he had died of a massive hemorrhage that had killed him pretty much immediately. Okay. So both victims are coaches. Both had been shot with a 22 caliber gun. Both had been married to the same woman. And both were murdered during the holidays. So the only difference between the victims was that Morris had been sober when he was killed and Gabby had a whopping 0.31 blood alcohol content. I mean, that is almost four times the legal limit and enough to kill or put somebody in a coma who's not used to drinking. But I mean, clearly he had built up a tolerance. Whoa. So the police theorized that the killer was the same for both men and that they took Morris by surprise, it looked like and that Gabby had been too drunk to fight back. Dr. Myers was the last person to have spoken to Gabby before his murder, and he was completely surprised by this turn of events. He knew Gabby had been drinking, but he didn't seem .31 drunk. And he was also troubled by the memory of a kind of bizarre conversation he had had with Gabby before his death. This is what Dr. Myers said to Anne Rule. Dr. Myers remembered an odd question that Gabby had asked him once, something that had no meaning at the time. Gabby had wanted to know if there was any place on the human body where a person could be shot, not in an arm or a leg, but a part of the torso where it wouldn't be fatal. Myers had pondered the question for a moment and then said, most people could probably sustain a gunshot wound in the shoulder blade and it probably wouldn't hit any vital organs. From what he understood, Gabby had been shot somewhere near his shoulder. It was odd and troubling to think that what he had taken to be a casual conversation might have had a purpose, although for the life of him, he couldn't imagine what that purpose might be. Mm. So to begin to unravel this befuddling mystery, Vern and the investigators first look to the strongest connection to both men, Deanne. Deanne, though, is quickly ruled out, however. She doesn't own a gun. Her hands tested negative for gunshot residue, and there was no secret fortune or insurance policy on either man. Plus, she was also exhibiting a very normal amount of shock and grief about the murders, you know? Yep. She also had no motive for killing her beloved Morris, and she had an alibi for Gabby as she had been spending Christmas Eve with her family. So I can kind of see if she thought Gabby killed Morris, that she maybe revenge killed him. But again, no gunshot residue on her hands and an airtight alibi with her family. Yep. Vern's hunch, based on Morris's delayed reaction and lack of defensive wounds, and the fact that there was no forced entry at Gabby's house, was that the killer was someone known to both men. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. The two men were popular coaches, and in the last few months of Gabby's sad existence, he had been spending a considerable amount of time with some of his former wrestlers. One of his former wrestlers had been assistant coaching with Gabby, and he had been seen driving his car around town, so it seemed like a good place to start. The former wrestling champion was named Angelo Pleasant, and he went by the nickname Tuffy. Tuffy was a 21-year-old college student who had been coached by both Gabby and Morris and had been the star of the 1972 state championship team that had been invited to Hawaii and Japan. Tuffy came from a salt-of-the-earth family that was hardworking and well-respected in Yakima, and Rule described the Pleasants as follows. The Pleasant family had carved a place for themselves as one of the most respected families in Yakima. Coydell Pleasant and her husband, Andrew, ran the Pleasant Shopper Market on South 6th Street. In order to make ends meet and see that his children all had good educations, Andrew also drove a garbage truck for the city of Yakima. That's good money. I know. It's crazy. I, I remember I had a friend who dated a garbage man, and she said he made, like, insane money. Yeah, they make great money, and I think it's all union. And I just found out this week that, like, even in L.A., you need a certain driver's license as a garbage man or woman to go in reverse on special streets. You get like, you get more benefits and like really? paid more. Yeah. You have to get a special license where you can go in reverse because not everyone can. Oh, I could do that. That The idea of being a garbage person stresses me out. Like not because of the garbage aspect, just the driving aspect. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. It's, I mean, it's one of the most important jobs in our society. One hundred percent, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah, and so actually, Vern was really good friends with Tuffy's dad, Andrew, because they both made extra money by driving garbage trucks for a couple summers together. Oh, Vern did as well. Vern did as well. Yeah, so the two became pretty close friends. The Pleasant Shopper Market was a typical neighborhood grocery store with a little bit of everything from canned goods to dairy products to produce and even had a small line of clothing. The Pleasant strength was that they gave a lot of personal attention that customers didn't find at chain supermarkets. They went out of their way to help customers find what they wanted and they were an unfailingly friendly and just kind of good plain people. Yeah. It also, you know, has to be said that they were a black family in a overwhelmingly white community. And so that's, I think, another thing that bonded Vern Henderson to this family as well, because there was just so few Black people in the community. And everybody loved the Pleasants. I mean, they had like six kids. They were all good kids. They were all really good in school, successful. Just, it was really just an amazing family. So when... Vern's digging into this. He doesn't believe that Tuffy has anything to do with it, but he knows the family and he knows that Tuffy was hanging out with Gabby a lot at this point. So he's like, this is a good place to start. Yeah. Yep. And so Tuffy was a huge wrestling star. I mean, he had been the one to go to Japan. He was like the star of that championship team. He was charismatic and he was really good looking. He was really tall, broad shoulders, beautiful wide smile. His only physical defect was a cauliflower ear, a condition many wrestlers and boxers suffer from. Gross. It's so gross, but they love it. It's like, it's like a badge really? of honor. Yeah. Oh. Nathaniel was telling me that like, if you are in like some sort of like ultimate fighting sport or wrestling or boxing or whatever, it's like showing how like tough you are. You, yeah, know? you earn it. Yeah. Exactly. Ugh, gross. I can't. Yep. 
So Gabby noticed Tuffy's star power and innate talent right away and immediately took him under his wing. Tuffy would later say that their relationship was hard to explain, but it went beyond just coach and student. Gabby was like a second father, a Spengali, and also a friend, just all rolled into one for Tuffy. Tuffy also played football for Gabby, and he stayed at the Moore's house so often when Gabby was still married to Gay that they had a dedicated guest room in the basement for him. Whoa. Yeah, so they were super duper close. By fall of 1975, Tuffy was attending Se- By fall of 1975, Tuffy was attending Central Washington University in Ellensburg with the goal of also securing a coaching gig and eventually becoming like Gabby. Like all of his like wrestlers like wanted to be like him, you know? Yeah. Though he took a room in Ellensburg, he spent most of his time in Yakima hanging out with Gabby or his fiance Renee, which again, this is a pseudonym for Renee, who was the mother of his three-year-old daughter, as well as being pregnant with another baby due in June. Whoa. Yeah. Tuffy had been coaching Gabby's wrestlers as his mental health had declined, and it behooved them both. Tuffy got a credit for student coaching from his university, and he got a chance to learn from the man he believed to be the best coach in the world. And Gabby got a good friend to confide his woes in about Deanne, as well as another coach to cover his ass when he was drinking. Okay. So Vern decided to interview Tuffy, but he's conflicted because he's like, I still really don't think that this guy did it. And also, even if he did kill Morris because of loyalty to Gabby, why would he turn around then and kill his mentor and this person he worships? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So Tuffy agrees to do a polygraph, but the results come back inconclusive. Essentially, the polygrapher believed that Tuffy had some knowledge of the situation, but they could not actually ascertain if he was involved in the murders at all. Okay. However, one of the other former wrestlers, a guy named Joey Watkins, who you may remember from the whole incident of Gabby trying to break into the Blanket Baker's house, he was friends with Tuffy and he said that Tuffy had had a gun prior to Morris's murder that he saw. He was like flashing it about town. It was specifically a German type 22 with a long barrel and a long handle wrapped in tape. So the 22 part definitely piqued Vern's interest. He just needed to find that gun, which Tuffy denied having. Okay. He's like, I don't know what he's talking about. I didn't have a gun. He's a liar. So Vern's like, okay, we got to dig that gun up and then we can match some ballistics, of course. Well, lo and behold, in a miraculous twist, the murder weapon was found less than six weeks later by two teenage brothers fishing in the Natchez River. Isn't that crazy? Wow. So someone was ditching it. Uh Uh-huh. So they took it home to their father, who, of course, turned it over to the police. And it was a long-barreled twenty-two with white tape around the handle. Bingo. Yikes. So, obviously, this was big news. And when it was publicized that they had found the murder weapon that was potentially tied to both Morris and Gabby's deaths, a nervous 27-year-old woman named Loretta Scott came forward to admit that she was the one who threw the gun in the river. Hmm. So Loretta went first to a public defender who helped her work out an immunity deal with the prosecutor, Jeff Sullivan, in exchange for her testimony. Loretta said that she had sold the gun to her cousin, a man named Tuffy Pleasant. No. I know. 
In November, he had taken it with the promise of paying her later. When he didn't pay her the money, she requested the gun back, which he gave her on November 29th. However, on Christmas Eve, he returned once again asking for the gun. She gave it to him, and he brought it back to her at 1.30 in the morning, Christmas Day, while she was hosting a Christmas Eve party. <laughs> yeah. That's some raw shit. Like, hey, I just need to borrow that gun again real quick. And that's basically what it was. And I guess her sister was there when he came back to get the gun because they were getting ready for the party or the party had started or something. And she was like, why did you give him that gun? Like, what is he going to do with it? And she was like, I don't know. He's my cousin. I didn't ask a question. And she's like, I think that was a mistake, you know? Yeah, I'd say. He, he apparently told her he like needed it for protection, but he was very vague about what that meant, you know? Wow. Yeah. So Loretta didn't think much about it until she found out the very next day that Coach Gabby Moore had been shot with a 22. So Loretta panicked and she asked her brother for help getting rid of the gun. As she drove, her brother Charles threw it into the river from the Twin Bridges. She tried to put the whole episode out of her mind, but just after the news of the gun's discovery hit the papers, Tuffy came to see her demanding she tell him where the gun was. So this is what she told the public defender and eventually the prosecutor, according to Anne Rule. Why did he want the gun again? Because he wanted to make sure that it wasn't the one that was in the river. Like basically he's like, you got that, that gun, right? Can you show it to me? So I know it's not the one that was found. When he demanded the gun, Loretta studied his face and she knew she had to find out what had really happened to Mr. Moore. Feeling a little guilty, she told Tuffy a lie. Oh, I gave it to some dude who lives down in Florida. I just gave it to him. Instantly, Tuffy's face gleamed with relief. Oh, cousin, thank you, he said. I love you for what you did. Tuffy asked her if she had read in the papers about the little boy who had gone fishing and had pulled a gun from the river. He had been so worried when he read that, afraid it was the 22 she had loaned him. But now she was relieved. Softly, Loretta continued her story to the Yakima investigators. I saw the joy and the love he had for me on his face because he thought I had done this, sent this gun to Florida. And I said, no, cuz, that's a lie I told you. And I sat him down on the couch and I said I had thrown the gun away in the river. All the relief had drained from Tuffy's face, Loretta said. How did he act when he found out you had thrown the gun into the river, Bob Brimmer asked. Time. I don't understand. Time. He was talking about, you know, what he was going to have to go through. Go through. Time meant time in prison. Yeah. Ron Henderson had convinced Tuffy so completely that if the death gun should ever be found, it could be traced directly back to the man who shot Morris and Gabby. And at that moment, Tuffy Pleasant was reacting as if all of his dreams of glory and wrestling, all of his hopes and plans to be a teacher would evaporate. All he could see was hard time, Loretta said. Okay, still very confused as to why he did this. So we're just about to jump into that. The cops now have enough to charge Tuffy with, and they arrest him on February 27th, 1976. And this is very hard on Vern Henderson because he's extremely close to Tuffy's father, so he feels very split in two. Of course. As an investigator and Morris's best friend, he feels like, this is the guy, we got him. I'm about to discover the truth about my best friend's death and, you know, provide justice for his mother and his grieving family. Yep. But as a friend to Andrew Pleasant and a black man, it's a devastating outcome if Tuffy is the killer. Vern knew how proud Andrew had been of his wrestling state champ college student's son and all of a sudden, all of that promise 
is just poof gone. Well, yeah, that's what happens if you kill someone. I know. It's so sad. It's like. And I always feel that way. Like we've had several cases where somebody manipulated somebody into killing for them. And it's just always devastating. It's always devastating. Like that's just something no one should do ever, obviously. But just don't kill other people, please. Well, and I think it's. Kill for other people. There's a different level of like, of sadness that happens when, that I feel, when it's like a kid who killed someone. 100%. 100%. Like in the Pamela Smart case, like, you yeah. know, that that kid that she seduced and manipulated. It's just, yep. it's devastating. So while in custody, Tuffy declines to get an attorney and he does talk. So initially he says that he just gave the killer the gun and he didn't do the actual shooting. But eventually, within a couple hours of interrogation, the real story came tumbling out. Tuffy says that he was elated to be assistant coaching with Gabby for the fall semester But the more time he spent around Gabby, the more he worried for him. His mentor and hero was beyond depressed. He was drinking himself nearly to death, and he wasn't able to be the coach or man that Tuffy knew. He was obsessed with getting Deanne back, and he told Tuffy that he knew she would come back to him if Morris was out of the picture. Gabby began to more and more discuss, quote, eliminating the problem and began to ask Tuffy if he could procure him a gun. For a couple months, Tuffy managed to stall him, hoping Gabby's mental health would improve and that he would give up this murderous plot. But he didn't. Gabby just kept wearing Tuffy down until Tuffy agreed to kill Morris for him. Okay. It was hard for Tuffy to explain why he did it. I don't think he even really knew. Tuffy had been just completely brainwashed by this man who had authority over him. Yes, but who also provided love, guidance, and support. It's just this total mindfuck for Tuffy, who also at this time needs Gabby to sign off on his college credits. So Uh, it's just a perfect storm of using love as manipulation. And I've always done everything for you. I, you know, always guided you to championships. Now I'm providing you with these college credits that I might not sign if you don't do this thing for me. I mean, he is pulling out all the stops to tangle this kid up. Gross. And there's never, ever, ever an excuse for murder, ever. But I do I do see how this kid got tangled up in this, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's just totally heartbreaking. So Gabby offers lots of plans. He's like, maybe you could ambush Morris while he goes to the YMCA with his son and make it look like a robbery. And Tuffy's like, no, I'm not killing this man in front of his child. Are you kidding me? He's like, okay, maybe you could kill him. Like Deanne always left for the bank a little earlier than Morris left for school. So he's like, between after Deanne leaves, when he's on his way to work in the morning, you kill him then. And Tuffy's like, no, there's going to be too many people around. I'm not going to do it like in broad daylight. And so finally, Gabby's like, why don't you kill him when he comes home from his shift? at the lion's chair and this they kind of agree to but there's never like a date set for when it's going to happen it's just like that seems like the best operating plan and at this point Tuffy is still hoping that Gabby just changes his mind you know yeah of course so when Gabby ended up in the hospital due to his high blood pressure he calls Tuffy from the hospital and he's like you have to do it now because I have an airtight alibi oh my god Wow. Mm-hmm. So that night, Tuffy went out drinking with Joey Watkins and eventually met up with some strangers that he befriended. 
And they went to a nearby bar called the Red Lion. And after two in the morning, Tuffy waited for Morris's car to pull up and for Morris to begin to enter his house. Tuffy approached Morris and told him he was having car trouble. And when Morris turned to help him, Tuffy shot Morris in the face. Wow. And he knew this kid. He had coached him, you know? Yeah. So Vern again pushed Tuffy to say why he had done this. And Tuffy really could not say. He hadn't received any money. At the end of the interrogation, Tuffy could only say, I was under the influence of him all the time, you know? I was on his mind track. I wasn't on mine. Like, he had just gotten so caught up with Gabby's life that he was no longer thinking for himself. And later in court, some psychologists testify that though Tuffy was competent and able to stand trial, he definitely exhibited signs of being brainwashed. Oh, my God. Wild. So what happened to Gabby? Well, if Gabby thought that things with Deanne were going to magically get back on track after her husband's shocking murder, he was clearly mistaken. Plunged even further into depression, Gabby hatched his most harebrained plot. He was going to fake harassment to garner Deanne's sympathy. Wow. Mm -hmm. What a douche. Like, she's going through something tragic, and now you're being a fake victim to try to draw attention back to your sad ass. Wow. After you kill her husband. Uh After you brainwash some young kid kid into doing it. Whoa. Yep. Next level. Mm -hmm. So when she didn't believe him and he wasn't getting the attention that he was seeking, he started begging Tuffy to non-lethally shoot him so that not only Deanne, but also the police would think that he was also being targeted and it was like some shadowy extra person that was against both of them for some reason. Wow. So Tuffy straight up refused. He was like, this has already gone too far. Morris is dead. I am not going to shoot you lethally or otherwise because this is a crazy, terrible plan. But basically at this point, Gabby got real evil and he said, well, if you don't do it, if you don't go. And he was like, also, I already gave the gun back to my cousin. I don't even have it. And he's like, you're going to go get that gun and you're going to do what I tell you to do. Or I'm calling the police and I'm telling them that you shot Morris. Straight up blackmailing him. Blackmailing him now. Wow. Mm-hmm. So Tuffy was terrified about that. And he finally agreed to go get the gun. And shoot Gabby in the shoulder. Gabby was too fucked up. Is that what happened? Well, the plan was for Gabby to get drunk so he wouldn't feel the pain of the shot. So he was getting wasted. And then he instructed, like he showed Tuffy exactly where to shoot him based on what his former father-in-law had said. And he assumed like a wrestling position called the referee where he like basically is on his hands and knees with his hands flat on the ground. And he's like, shoot me here. He had already taken his phone off the hook so he could reach it. So he's like, I want you to shoot me. You take off. I called 911. They come and get me. You're already gone. You're going to be fine. Such a dumb plan. It's such a dumb plan. So... Tuffy did shoot him in the left shoulder as instructed, and he didn't know. I mean, he knew that he went down and he could, he thought something was bad, right? But he got out of there, as was the plan, 
And when he left, he did not know whether Gabby was alive or dead. And, you know, as we now know, something obviously went gravely wrong. That single 22 caliber bullet had glanced off the rib, went off target, and it burned straight through Gabby's heart and lungs. Yeah. So Gabby was likely dead by the time Tuffy reached his car. Whoa. Yep. A desperate man with a terrible deranged plan made a killer of a young man who had trusted him and ended up killing himself in the process. Ugh. I know. This whole thing. It's like Shakespearean tragedy. It's so stupid. He ruined two young men's life who looked up to him and loved him. Just took away one person's life forever and And one of them saved his life. I know. So, of course, Tuffy's family was horrified. They were also mad at Vern because they believed that he had forced the confession because Tuffy had denied having an attorney present. They were like, we don't know. You guys might have railroaded him. Why didn't he have an attorney? And they were like, he's on tape saying, I'll I'll speak without an attorney. So there's nothing you have to do about this. And they were doubly upset when youngest son, Anthony, who also wrestled with Gabby and was very, very close to Tuffy, was also arrested for being an accomplice, along with Tuffy's really good friend, Kenny Marino. But charges were eventually dropped when the DA decided that there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute the potential accomplices. Okay. So Vern tried to do right by the Pleasant family. He personally escorted Tuffy from prison to the hospital in the summer when his second baby girl was born. But it still is like, he's doing this out of like respect for Tuffy's father and his family and the fact that Renee, of course, wanted the father to meet her baby girl. But at the same time, it's like, Vern was kind of like, it's hard to have sympathy for the man who killed my best friend, you know? Of course, of course. And I think most frustrating about this whole situation is that Gabby, the man who had masterminded all of this pain and agony, wasn't there to be held accountable No, for his actions. Although I guess death is kind of instant karma, huh? I guess. But I mean, that wasn't his plan either. No, it wasn't. I mean, also, they would have found out. Even if you got shot, you know, they would have found out about this. This is, I. it's always weird to me when people, like, fake an injury or something. And, like, the cops always figure out that you injured yourself or you got somebody else to do it for you, you know? I mean, when you said he was shot in the shoulder, I definitely thought that he shot himself. Yep. So even though the charges against Kenny Marino and Anthony Pleasant were dropped, it seemed to give the defense a framework for how they would tell Tuffy's side of the story. In August of 1976, the trial opened. The prosecution's story was pretty much what I have told you from Tuffy's confession, but the prosecution contended that Tuffy had in fact meant to kill Gabby as well. So they claimed that he had murdered Gabby to eliminate the only person who knew he had killed Morris. I don't think so. I don't I don't think so either. I the way that you've explained everything, I really don't think so. Like I don't think that he's even like a a danger to society. Like I don't think he would have done this if it wasn't for the influence and pressure, peer pressure from his coach. 100% and I agree with you completely, especially given that at the autopsies Clearly, the bullet went in through the shoulder. Yeah. Versus when he executed Morris to execute Morris, he shot him right in the head. If he was trying to kill Gabby, he would have shot him in the head. Yeah. You know? 
Well, the defense had a wildly different version of events. So the defense claimed that while, yes, Tuffy did have knowledge of the events that led to Morris and Gabby's murders, he did not actually pull the trigger to kill either man. Huh. They claimed that Tuffy's brother Anthony had killed Morris at Gabby's request and that Kenny Marino had been the one to deliver the shot to Gabby. Both of the other young men had been wrestlers and also pretty tight with Gabby, so it was, I guess, feasible, but still a wild stretch. And both young men had really good alibis, which is why the prosecutor had dropped the charges for them. Okay. And as for the confession, which there was no getting around, they were, it was allowed in, so they were going to hear from Tuffy himself what actually happened. They said that Tuffy had lied in that confession to protect his little brother and his best friend. Oh. Yeah, it's still it's still not a good story. But, I mean, I, I don't know why they didn't just go with he was coerced into this. He was manipulated and brainwashed and blackmailed and tried to go for, like, a lesser charge, you know? That, I think, would have made more sense than trying to spin this whole different story, you know? Yeah, but was psychology as much of a part of the courtroom as it is now? Yeah, I mean, probably not. It's 1976, so I feel like they just probably believe that a jury wouldn't care. Yeah. Ugh. So the trial became a bit of a media sensation when the love triangle aspect was revealed, and as a result, Deanne was the most hotly anticipated witness. Deanne surprised everyone when she stated in court that her name was Deanne Littleton, and she revealed that she had remarried in April, only five months after Morris had been killed and four months after Gabby was murdered as well. Girl. I know. Yeah, so that caused a bit of a scandal, especially because her new husband was only 22 years old, seven years younger than Deanne, who was currently 29. So she's got this new, young, hot husband. And she did admittedly, and like Anne Rule talks about this, she looked younger than 29. She was slight, slender, doe-eyed, and she spoke so softly that the judge had to ask her to speak up a few times while she was testifying. Deanne testified about Gabby's obsession and her belief that he was responsible for Morris's murder. Now, you know that I hate it when, you know, the person who's the victim is basically on trial at the trial. Yeah. Yeah. But in this case, I think it's pretty deserved. And that was kind of the vibe of Tuffy's trial was that the prosecution was saying essentially, and even it's like the one thing they all agreed on. They were like, yes, Gabby should be held responsible for what happened to him. But legally, Tuffy's the one who shot these two pulled the trigger. Yeah, exactly. As compelling as Deanne was, her testimony mattered little to the case. However, Tuffy's cousin Loretta's testimony was damning as hell against him. The prosecution also called a firearms expert who connected the bullets and casings found in and around the victims to Loretta's gun. And of course, they also played snippets of Tuffy's confession. The defense called Tuffy himself to the stand, but in cross-examination, he quickly got caught up in his own lies. And oh, no. Yeah, he got like real 
confused about what his story was supposed to be. And then the prosecutor would come back and be like, wait, okay, so let's let's play back what you said, you know, five minutes ago. And then they'd go back and he had said something totally different. So this is what Anne Rule said. Anne Rule said that Prosecutor Sullivan's cross-examination was adroit. At the first sign of the opening, he pounced. The defendant was so busy straining that he forgot to show appropriate emotion where he should have. The gallery could see that, and surely the jurors could. And the lies and the semi-lies. There were so many. Sullivan was like a boxer looking for an opening. When he found one, he jabbed. He caught every hesitation, every contradiction. Tuffy Pleasant was on the ropes, confused and wobbling. Of course. I mean, if he could get convinced that easily to kill someone, his defense attorneys like helped him create this narrative and he's having a hard time sticking to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. After each side delivered their closing arguments, the jury was sequestered. And after one full day of deliberations, they returned their verdict. And Rule noted that several of the jurors were crying, which is never a good sign for the defense. And it wasn't in this case either. Angelo Tuffy Pleasant was found guilty of murder and manslaughter. Tuffy's family and fiance burst into tears. Before leaving the courtroom, one of the jurors hugged Tuffy's mother and cried, this was the hardest day of my life. I'm so, so sorry. Oh my God. Can you imagine? Ugh, I can't. And I guess like sweet Coydell was just like, You did the best you could. If you were being honest, that's all you can do. Yeah. You know, another juror leaned against a wall and cried uncontrollably. A third juror told a reporter outside the courthouse through tears, it was the law. We had to do it. It was the goddamn law. Whoa. This seemed to affect them very deeply. I feel like they're responding to what we're responding to, which is the tragedy of this young man's life being ruined by becoming a killer for this other man, you know? And they're right. There was nothing they could do. How do you not, you listen to this case, you look at the evidence and you know it doesn't matter that he was tricked into it or he was brainwashed into it. He did it. He pulled that trigger twice, you know? Four times, really. Yeah. So on Friday, September 10th, 1976, Tuffy Pleasant was sentenced to the maximum sentence for first-degree murder for Morris and for manslaughter for Gabby. 20 years each, but the sentences would be served concurrently rather than consecutively. So he wasn't having to serve 40 years. He's serving a total of 20. Okay. Tuffy would someday be available for parole. He was taken away immediately after sentencing, like I said, two promising lives taken away by the coach they trusted. Uh, You know, and he also died because of his own obsession with a woman. What yep. a waste. So while Anne Rule covered this case and went to the trial every day, she didn't actually publish this book for 20 years. Isn't that crazy? So at the time of this murder, these murders in Yakima, she hadn't yet published The Stranger Beside Me or any of her other books at that point. And so Olive Blankenbaker basically begged her to write a book about this. And she was like, at the time insecure and not as confident as a writer. And she also hadn't published yet. So she didn't think she could sell the book to a publisher. So she was like, I'm sorry, Olive. Like I know. And I like, I think she had, she had covered it like as a journalist. I know you want me to put this together in a book, but I don't think it's going to happen. And Olive for years, like sent her pictures of Morris and was like, if you, you know, do the book, you can use these in the book. 
And many, many, many years later, Anne had at this point become a big true crime writer. She had already published six books and she was at a book signing when all of a sudden she sees a familiar little old face in the crowd and it's Olive. So Olive is like, hey, you're a really big writer now. Can you do Morris's case, please? And Andrew was like, okay. I'm going to do it for you, Olive. And she like went back to Yakima and she did all these interviews and she spent like years finishing up this book wow. and she dedicated it to Olive. Wow. Yeah. So That's Olive awesome. told – isn't that sweet? Yeah. Olive told her that Mike Morris's half-brother, despite having no blood relation to her, had become like a son to her. Apparently he called and visited quite often. Olive is still very close to her grandchildren, especially Amanda – who became a teacher, moved back to Yakima as an adult, and married and had a baby that she sees all of all the time. Both children are well into adulthood and thriving. Their mother Deanne's marriage, though it seemed like it was this scandalous, like, rebound marriage, was unbelievably happy and long-lasting. They've been together ever since. Um, her husband, Jim, had a wholesale produce business that he moved to Seattle, and Deanne's son, Rick, joined the family business when he grew up. Deanne herself became a successful stockbroker. Really? Yeah. Oh, so my God. She definitely um, came out of this tragedy, and it sounds like she raised those children very well. As of 1996, Vern Henderson worked for the Attorney General's office assigned to fraud, white-collar crime, and internal investigation. He went through some crazy shit. Like, he was on a case with some, like, turned in some really bad people. I can't remember exactly for what. But in retaliation, they set his house on fire. Whoa. Yeah. and, And luckily, his family all got out. But apparently, the house burned to the ground. He was so stressed about it that he experienced burnout and he ended up leaving to go work in like Alaska for a little while and just like clear his head and he said that that experience of like being in Alaska for a little while kind of helped him come to terms with like the stress of losing his best friend the stress of working on that case the stress of putting Tuffy away and losing that friendship he had with Tuffy's dad And he was like, it was a really healing time. And when he came back, he went to work for the attorney general's office and he just worked in like white collar crime. And it was a very better fit for him. Mayor of East Town vibe, the story too. Yes. I mean, I think that's why I was so attracted to the story. The more I got into it, I was like, this is just cinematic. It's so, it's such a tragedy all around you know we cover cases where there's just so clearly the villain in so many of these to have this very human story unfold in front of us is is just tragedy yeah so Coydell and Andrew Pleasant stayed in Yakima though of course nothing remained the same for them all of their other children attended good colleges and prospered Tuffy served almost exactly 20 years, and as of Anne Rule's update in 1996, he was out of prison on probation. Probation authorities noted that Tuffy was a good candidate for rehabilitation and that his plan was to go back to school. So I couldn't dig up any follow-up information on what he did do with his life, but he got out at 42 and it looked like he was planning on going back to school. And seeing as I couldn't find any more information about him, I'm hoping that means that he just lived a really quiet, happy life and he put this whole episode behind him. That'd be awesome. 
yeah, I mean, we don't usually root for the people who pull the trigger, but I do feel some sympathy in this case. And, and I hope that the rehabilitation actually worked and I hope, you know, 20 years was his debt to society and he paid it. And I hope that he, he, you know, got a, paid it forward and lived a good life, you know? Right. If you guys liked this story and you want to hear some more Anne Rule, which I I have some coming up, please (laughs) head over to Apple Podcasts and write us a review and let us know what you think of the show because we love to hear from you and it makes our day. So thank you. In conclusion, it's really, really bad to move in with your super nice friend and then steal his wife. Just don't do it. Oh, especially after he saved your life already. Oh my God, yes. I almost forgot about that for a second. Especially when he saved your life. Don't steal his wife. Jeez Louise. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.